Well, this morning we will embark on expositing a unique passage in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Ephesians 6, verse 5 through 8. And this is a passage about the relationship of a slave to his or her master. A unique passage. And we might be tempted to do two opposing things in regard to it. The first is to simply ignore it, to skip the passage altogether, to move past it, to think that it doesn't apply to us in any way. The second temptation, we might try to move too quickly to secondary applications, applications that may be good, but nonetheless they don't completely represent the author's original intent. Regarding the temptation to ignore the passage or this issue of slavery, we might think that we're far too removed from the subject of slavery in today's society, but we're really not. In fact, today, there are literally millions of slaves around the world. And we'll talk about this more later. Regarding the temptation to focus too quickly on secondary applications, You all know that we have promoted this as a sermon being about the role of the employee, which is, I I think, a good secondary application, one that we should address because uh, I know I've heard a lot of negative feedback, as I'm sure you have, about how Christians function in the workplace, how even some in our own church body function in the workplace. And so, although I think it's a good application, I think we'd be unwise and feeble in our approach if we didn't address the most obvious issues first. This passage is first and foremost about literal slaves and literal masters. That's what Paul was addressing. As odd as it may sound, the Bible addresses the issue of slavery. Even as you read the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, you'll come across a number of passages that deal with the issue of slavery. It addresses the responsibility of anyone who owned a slave as to the responsibility regarding the treatment of the slave. The scripture was always making provision for the helpless, for the weak, for women for children, for the orphan, and here in this passage for slaves. If you were to study ancient times and even other ancient religious codes, you would see the utter superiority of Christianity in this regards. Because in other ancient religious systems, there wasn't this kind of of nurture. There wasn't this kind of protection Christianity has always been superior in in this regards to its treatment, to its provision, to its protection of the most vulnerable in society. Provisions were made in the law of Moses to protect slaves. Because up until this time, masters simply treated slaves however they wished. Now this is not to say that God condones slavery. God addressing the issue of slavery does not necessitate his stamp of approval on it. But we should note that this issue of ancient slavery 
was somewhat different from our modern worldview. And I'm not going to make too much of this because even in this, the institution was still wrought with sin and abuses. Slavery in ancient Israel was for the most part a remedy for poverty. Let me say that again. Slavery in ancient Israel was for the most part a remedy for poverty. It was a way for a person, regardless of race, to simply pay off debt. If in the span of a seven-year time frame, someone found themselves indebted to another person, they could simply offer themselves in order to pay off their debts. This is the context in the Law of Moses. This was called indentured servitude, which is somewhat different from the chattel form of slavery that most of us are familiar with. What we saw, for example, in America in its early years, which was based primarily on what? Race. So what was going on in the time of the Bible was a way for one to pay off debt. To be able to work for another person until the Sabbath year. The Sabbath year was when all debts were canceled and all slaves were set free. Now in this seventh year, the law even made provision for the person who wanted to continue working for their master. Do you remember reading that in the law? If conditions were good and the slave wanted to continue working, they had a ceremony whereby the slave... Uh, the ear of the slave was pierced to signify that they were no longer just a servant, but a bondservant, a willing subject. And it's in this perspective that Paul calls himself, you remember in Romans 1, what does he call himself? A bondservant of Jesus Christ. It's in that perspective that Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Now let's be fair. We should note that not all master-slave relationships were this way. The chattel form of slavery, where per a person was basically owned by a master, did exist. In many ways, this was true of slavery, even in biblical days. People were property. They were mistreated. They could be bought and sold. Even, even with the people of Israel, the world's most judicial and equitable system, this was true. People were owned. Slaves were abused. They had no rights. And yet, in the midst of all of that, Paul tells the slaves in the church of Ephesus to obey their masters. So what's the point? Why is this passage here? What's the encouragement for us today? Well, think about it. If those people in, the, in Paul's day could submit in such a terrible system, wrought with all of its sin and all of its abuses, then how much more should we be able to submit to our employers where we have good jobs, good pay, good bosses, in a fair and just, equitable system. And yet, what do we do? We go into our jobs and we complain. We're lazy. We're no good. 
We covet, we steal time, we are thorns in the flesh of our bosses, and sometimes even in the name of Christ. If the slaves in Paul's day could submit under such terrible abuses, then what prevents us from being God-honoring, Christ-honoring in our work ethic every day at our jobs? God help us. Christianity was the changing force in Paul's day in regard to slavery. The gospel was actually the driving force that undermined the institution. If you've ever read Paul's letter to Philemon, in that letter, Paul exhorts Philemon uh, to receive Onesimus, the runaway slave, back as what? A brother. Paul told Onesimus to not shirk his responsibility, to go back and to fulfill his duties. But Paul told Philemon to receive him back as a brother. The gospel actually undermined the institution of slavery. And in the way that Christianity was the changing force in Paul's day, it should be the changing force today regarding this issue of slavery. And we're going to talk about that more later. Now, regarding how slaves were to submit to their masters and how we are to submit to our bosses, we're going to see this issue as one being tied to Christ. Slaves were to submit to their masters as unto Christ, as unto the Lord willingly. So when people see an employee submitting to their boss, they're not just seeing that earthly relationship. They're seeing something beyond that. They're seeing a picture. A picture of what? They're seeing a picture of the Godhead. They're seeing a picture of who God is. Christians are called a peculiar people in the Bible. Not that we try to act weird, but it is inherently odd to see people submitting to one another, subject to one another. Submitting to authority. It's an odd thing. Our current position of employment is all about Christ. Jesus was always submitting to the Father. That's what the gospel produces. It's all about the gospel. It's all about putting the gospel on display. When we submit to authority, it opens the door for people to see the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. It's a picture of the gospel. Theologians call this subordinationism. Christ was subordinate to the Father. And when we don't submit, when we are rebellious, people see something antithetical to that. They don't see the Godhead. When we don't live that way, they see something antithetical to Christianity. You are actually de-evangelizing when you don't submit to your boss. Our current position of employment is all about Christ. It's all about his gospel. Your current position of employment is all about your sanctification. If God has entrusted you to work in an unreasonable environment with an unreasonable boss, then God's plan for you includes sanctification. Simply put, God is going to purify you through your boss. 
Sometimes God uses lost people. Evil people. Evil circumstances. Evil events. Evil diseases. To purify us. Your current position of employment may be all about your sanctification. And if this is where God has you, in that kind of situation, then He promises in His Word, Hebrews 13, what does He say? He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's His covenant promise. To walk with you in that environment. To walk with you in that situation. He may not change the situation He may change you. Finally, in way of introduction, the gospel should be the driving force behind us functioning differently in our jobs. So this is not a pick yourself up by the bootstraps kind of message. Do better. This should be gospel driven. And we're going to talk about that more later. But the fact is, we are utterly incapable of doing this apart from the Spirit. At least from a heart level we are. And having godly motives. But it is possible as children of God. The Spirit enables us to do this. The Spirit of God enables us to live godly lives even in the midst of ungodly settings. In fact, the unadulterated message of the gospel ultimately is that God has already done this on our behalf. That's the message of the gospel. So let's read our passage Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as unto the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So our first principle today is that God calls you to obey your bosses with a sincere heart. God calls you to obey your bosses with a sincere heart. How do we do this? Paul actually says to obey them in fear and trembling, meaning that you should reverence them. Reverence your boss the way that you would reverence God. In fact, I would go as far as to say how you view authority actually says a lot about how you view God. Because it's wrong-headed to say that, oh yeah, I submit to God. I follow God's authority, but you don't submit to God's authority that He's given you in an earthly sense. Obey your bosses. Obey them sincerely from a right heart. A heart-level obedience. When you're given a task to do, do that task to the best of your ability. But don't just do the task. Fulfill it in the way that your boss Ask it to be done. Don't have your own agenda. Don't be bullheaded. Be easy to work with. Obey your boss with a sincere heart. Paul also says in this verse, to obey not by way of eye service or people pleasing, but as bondservants to Christ. Some of you are plagued with this sin here. 
You are plagued with the sin of people-pleasing. It's what drives everything that you do. And I want to encourage you with, with this and with, with your dealings with, with the sin in your life. Don't just confess surface sins and leave it at that. Always look for the root of your sin. Always try to get to where the sin is coming from. You may see certain sins continually creeping up to the surface in your life. You may continually confess those sins, but it, it always resurfaces. You need to weed out the root of your sin. Find out where it's coming from. Where is the stronghold? And, and get to that. Ask God to show you that and root that out. But for some of you, this issue of people-pleasing is what drives so many of your surface sins. On the job, sometimes you might do just enough to get by. You might just work when the boss is around. You might be more concerned with just fulfilling the letter of the law rather than the spirit of it. You might be more concerned with doing the things that make you look good instead of doing the things that are good. Don't be people pleasers. Serve the Lord. He says, serve as bondservants of Jesus Christ. Don't just think about whether this project is good enough to get by, but whether or not you did it as unto the Lord. Did you do your best? And when you do it, let it go. Some of you can't put your work down because you're not trusting the Lord. You're people-pleasing. Serve from the heart. Do your best. Do, do your job as unto the Lord. And when your work is done, let it go. This is God's will. Paul ties it here to serving Christ. Our second principle is that God calls you to do your job with good will. God calls you to do your job with good will. Work was a part of God's creation. Bruce uh, alluded to this last week. In the Garden of Eden, Adam worked. God created him to work. It wasn't a result of the fall. Adam was created to tend the garden. In heaven, we will work. When the Garden of Eden is restored, we will continue to work. I know for me, the hardest thing about cancer treatment was, was this right here. The fact that I didn't work. That was probably the hardest thing that, that I endured. We were created for work. Heaven will be filled with Christ worshipers who work. Work is good. It's a part of the creation covenant. God wants us to serve our employees with goodwill. Don't serve with an ill will. Don't be an angry, ornery, hard to work with employee. Serve with a good attitude from a right heart. Delight in your work. Consider it an honor to serve. In fact, I would say that's probably one of the biggest ways that God sanctified me during my cancer treatment. Because I learned in that time just the utter joy of going to work. How good that was. We were created for work. Delight in your work. Consider it an honor to serve.
And Jesus modeled this for us. Jesus was a hard worker, working from morning till evening, the Gospels say. Accomplishing the will of his Father. Accomplishing the tasks that the Father gave him with sincerity, with humility. God shows us through Christ the work ethic that he honors. The work ethic that he values. Now, you might be tempted in thinking about serving with the goodwill that this is a command that applies when working conditions are good, when bosses are fair, uh, when they're respecting us. When bosses are respecting us, we're going to turn around and respect our bosses. That's, that's godly living. Look at 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. And let's see what Peter has to say about this. We're going to joyfully serve our bosses when our bosses are being respectable. 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 20. Peter says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. I get so tired of hearing people talk about their trials, trials that were brought on by themselves. As if they're patiently enduring and patiently in a godly manner enduring the trials that they brought on themselves. That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about the people who, in doing what's right, are treated unjustly and yet they serve. Yes, yet they're... They're working in a just manner, submitting themselves in such a condition anyways. And this is what leads us to um, our third principle. But let, let me add one more thing before we go on to our third principle, which is about the reward, which it ties in. But doesn't this all come back to a rights issue? What does our culture teach? It's a very rights-based culture, right? In fact, a lot of our sin revolves around the issue of expectation. Having our, our needs met. Someone else fulfilling our rights. You hear that all the time on commercials. You have a right to this. You have a right. That's how they sell products, right? But what does the Bible say? How does Jesus address this issue of rights in the Sermon on the Mount, there, there's about a four-verse passage in, in Matthew 5 where Jesus basically says, if someone should smite you on the right cheek, what do you do? You turn to him the other also. If someone should sue you at the court and take your cloak, what do you do? You give him your coat also. If someone should compel you to go one mile, what do you do? You go two. This passage is teaching us to lay down our rights. 
to be subject to one another. The essence of Christianity is the fact that we lay down our rights. The essence of Christianity is not that we claim any rights of our own, but that we lay them down when we come to Christ. In Christ, we have no rights. But when you live in that way, persevering, walking with Christ with a patient character, submissive from your heart, do what the third principle says. Expect a great reward. That's our third principle. Expect a great reward. You know, many times we act as if expecting a reward is a bad thing. I kind of see that. I kind of feel that vibe from the Reformed folks. They just do what you do and don't expect a great reward. But the Scripture, Paul says here, expect a great reward. It's not a bad thing. If you're in Christ, if you're upright, if you're godly, if you're patient in your work, God will reward you. Not always in this life, but the reward is coming. May it not be said of us that we're lazy, incompetent, unreliable people. Christians should be the most reliable. Christians should show up to their job. Christians should follow through with their tasks. Christians should persevere in their work. Christians should have a stick-to-itness kind of nature about them. But I'm afraid all too often we're the antithesis of that. We're the people who uh, boast loudly about what we believe and yet do the least. I'm afraid that most of the time, truth be known, most bosses probably hate to, to even hire professing Christians. So we should work hard. We should be reliable. And when we do that, we should expect a great reward. Finally, our fourth principle is that God-honoring work is gospel-driven. God-honoring work is gospel-driven. Working hard with a single focus of pleasing God and sincerity of heart is a God thing. You may be able to accomplish those things at the flesh level, but submitting in this way from the heart, doing this willingly, is a God thing. It's gospel-driven. It's beyond our capabilities. These works must be produced by the Spirit of God. Now as we close in way of application, I just want to ask you, have you ever experienced, or do you experience on a, on a continual basis this kind of obedience, this kind of God-wrought, God-honoring, Christ-exalting obedience in the workplace? Do you experience that? Is that a common characteristic of your life? Or are you, as we said, the kind of employee that, uh, that your, your boss probably begrudges? This morning, I would hope that we would be a people that would repent that we would see our failure and we would just simply repent. But that we not just stop there, but that we repent before our bosses. You want to know some action that you can take that would 
just drive the gospel forward? Can you imagine what would happen for professing believers to go to their boss and repent in this way? Can you imagine what God would do with that? What kind of gospel impact that would have in our workplace? We talked a while ago about the issue of slavery. We said earlier that there are millions of people around the world still held captive as as slaves. In fact, it's estimated today that there are more than 27 million slaves today. 27 million. In fact, if you will Google uh, the words slave map, you're going to see that we may not be too far removed from this issue in our own county. That map shows locations around the world in which slavery still exists today, or at least it might exist. When you, when you Google that, you're going to be surprised. This year, Passion uh, hosted Passion 2012, a week-long conference, a week-long conference uh, primarily designed for college students, and their focus was modern-day slavery. And this year, they raised over $3 million and mobilized thousands of college students um, in order to free slaves around the world. In response to the conference, one of my former students at Donahoe made a commitment to study law. She, she was already planning to study law, and now her commitment has moved to study law and to partner with the International Justice League in order to free slaves around the world, many of which are, are women and children forced into a life of prostitution. They're sex slaves. But I want you to consider, as as we close, I want you to consider ways that you might be involved. Uh, How could God move us as Grace Fellowship to be involved in this way? And I I don't really have all the answers. But I wonder what God might do in the midst of our body. I wonder as we we flesh this out in in our home group times, uh, what some ideas might be. Uh, And I have one to share with you, a way that you can be involved very practically uh, even now. And we'll talk about that after we watch a short video. But I want you to think about how you can give, how you can go. We we even have one person in our body uh, now, Jill Ray Johnson, who is already pursuing this in her life. She wants to be a missionary overseas in order to uh, be a part of seeing... Uh, women and children set free from slavery. I wonder how we can get involved with that. I said earlier that there was one particular way that you can be involved now. Do you realize that uh, this is really the goal of Micah's hope? Because if you think about it, every orphan that we bring home, that's one less person forced into labor, or into being a sex slave. So if you want to know how you can give, we can give to Micah's Hope, and we can be a tangible part of bringing those orphans home. We can be a tangible part of that. So God, may God 
bring about um, through His Spirit the fruit of action. Has the gospel ever um, produced something in you that was absolutely radical? Have you ever done anything radical for the Lord as a result of what His Spirit has done in you? May God produce this kind of spirit-wrought obedience in His people. Let's pray.